1: We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world.
0: So let's get started. Hey, Becky.
1: Oh my gosh, we're about to have the best time. We are already having so much fun.
0: Like, we're having a stitch already.
1: I just want to say that this is the best-dressed man, in in the words of ZZ Top, that we have ever had on the podcast, and we have our first bow tie today.
0: Already, I think the stories and just the life that you live is just so fascinating, and it's threaded together with really perpetuating so much goodness in our sector and challenging us in the best of ways. So it is my honor to introduce Mark Pittman to the podcast. We're really excited for today's conversation. Mark is an international leadership coach. You may have seen him at your favorite conference because he's been there, but he really has poured himself out through a lot of different outlets, but specifically loving and serving leaders and really trying to equip them and telling them it's okay to have that imposter syndrome. It's okay to have doubt. And in fact, he wrote the book on this and it dropped last year. And it's something that we really want to dive in today. Of how do we embrace that doubt? How do we how do we turn that into something that can help you be more exceptional? So you know we're taking notes over here because we feel like imposters all the time. I kind of feel like that's sitting across from Mark today. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, and you're right. I've already just I, I haven't had so much fun in, in before we start broadcasting. I mean, we were just having a blast. So thank you for all you're doing too, and thanks for making my ego feel great. I can't wait to send this to my parents to say, hey, look, I made something of myself. Print this out. Have them print it the out the and put
1: it on the fridge. James yeah, joke. Absolutely. Okay.
0: <laughs> so you know, take us back. I mean, you had this incredible mm-hmm. career. You've got this really beautiful, tight knit family that has just been showing up and serving in the sector. Kind of tell us your journey and what has led you to really focusing on leadership and fundraising.
2: Wow. Well, I was born at a young age. My parents' names were mom and dad. Um, <laughs> mine too. Oh, my God, <laughs> It's shocking. I know. There's it's just so like many commonalities. Really when I was growing up, one of the things that was really fun about my family was uh, I thought was fun. Other people have thought was really aw- awkward was that I had two sets of homework. I had homework for school and I had homework for being a Pittman. So my school homework was – all the stuff you'd get in school. And then being a Pittman, I had to read things like Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people. I had to read mm-hmm. Brian Tracy, Florence Littauer on uh, little silver boxes and how to be nice to people and stuff on disc, you know, personality theory. And, and I had to listen to positive motivational speakers as well. Uh, my parents got into Amway at some point in that journey. And so they drag us to the seminars and rallies. So I was as a teenager learning about goal setting, life goals, checking, hearing some of the top motivational speakers talk about checking your th- goals off your list. In fact, when I was, uh, I think it was in my 20s, I think I had gotten out of my teens, I wrote down a list of goals that I wanted by decade to the age of 120, and I figured I can negotiate after that. <laughs> I've been looking for that a lot because I just turned half a century This uh, at the time of this recording. I just turned 50, so I'm trying to figure out where I'm at in the goal list. So goals and leadership have always been something that's been part of my Kind of the, the water I've swam in. Uh, in college, I got a scholarship that required lower grades because they'd expect you to be in uh, in leadership and, and and changing things in leadership. Um, after college, I fell into fundraising. I got into admissions, and I loved two things. I love one is helping people find their purpose, really live in their purpose, and embrace it and and their unique ways. Not in a sort of glad handing. You know, we're all, we're all okay. Everybody's okay. But in a, in a a way that sincere, you are a gift. The The reason that you're on this planet is something profoundly important. Let's be that. And the fact that you have limits is profoundly important because that means you can rely on other people. So I love that. And the admissions work at the college was perfect for that because I got to talk to people at a pivotal part of their journey where they're going off to college. And I had the permission to say, no, you don't fit. This is not a good school for you, or we would be a bad fit for you. Um, but here are some places that you'd like that would, would be good or we're, we could be a really great fit for you. The development office recruited me after because they said, you know, May 1st, it gets weird if you talk talking to their students. May 1st in the United States is when you decide. So the development people recruited me. Bob Grinnell was my first development uh, boss and, met and longtime mentor who said, we get to have those values conversations with people all their lives throughout the year. And it doesn't have to end. We get to help them keep investing in things that they care about. Um, And hopefully it'll be us as well. So fell into fundraising, thought I was going to be a pastor. I think uh, the universe or God had mercy on the the congregation. I did pastor later, but there was a 15-year gap of like real life that happened, which was really good because I got to learn a lot of the questions instead of giving a lot of the answers.
1: (laughs) I just have to say, Mark, one You're funny. (laughs) Looks
2: aren't everything.
1: I love your energy. I love how joyful you are. I love your spirit and your passion. And it, and it's just a good day when we can just dive into the annals of leadership. And I, I just think about this incredible brand that you have created and what you've stood up to sort of build these frameworks for us to be aspirational and to think about our mindsets. And it's so much deeper than than just personality analysis and going to seminars, but the story of what your mom and dad did, mom and dad Pittman, I'm so proud of you for being such (laughs) evolved parents. And I I think Sophia and Julia are about to get some, uh, I don't know, Uh some light reading (laughs) over the summer. How much hate mail I'm going to
2: get in about a decade. My parents read your book and they started telling yeah. <laughs> but but my parents they as they were learning these people skills and things like the how to create actionable tasks that actually get things done. Like what you're saying um about the personality assessments, it's not just the assessment, it's what do you do with it. So yeah, you could navel gaze all you want, but there's gotta there what's the result of the navel gazing? So that's where they just couldn't believe that we weren't being taught that in schools. Why aren't people learning this? Why aren't they learning how to build a personal brand? Why aren't people Learning this and and it made so yeah that I think those are all I'm so grateful for the family I grew up in as odd and weird as we were <laughs> it
1: was you I know still it like odd us. and weird is the color of this world and I those are my people so I just really love your story and I and I love this challenge to just go deeper in your leadership analysis and I and I sense this like so much it's a journey and and it's not like if you become an, a leader or an ED you've arrived and you can never evolve again. It's This is something we just have to work on all the time. And so we would love for you to kind of dive into, you know, what do you think are sort of the hallmarks of a successful nonprofit leader today? And I say that with a lot of weight behind it, because the nonprofit leader of today is not the nonprofit leader from two years ago. The world is so different. And we would love to just get your bent on this and what you are seeing and sort of trending right now. So
2: I think for a non, first of all all the nonprofit CEOs executive directors that are listening thank you. I think the, two of the things that are so important for leaders today to understand is that nonprofits aren't businesses. Um, there's there's been so much I think well-intentioned but misguided saying we have to run more like a business. The fundamental tax structure at least in the United States is that nonprofits aren't businesses. So the executive director has all of the responsibility to the decisions, but none of the authority to make them uh, because the board governs the nonprofit. That's part of how it gets to be a community-centered organization. So learning to live in that tension of I'm responsible for staff, uh, em- employment satisfaction, mission outcomes and all, but I don't. I still have this other group I have to go to. And, and sometimes even though the boss is that one group, sometimes each of the individual board members think they're the boss, which is also so problematic. So I would say getting used to governance in a nonprofit, figuring out what governance really is, um, what are the board's limits? Uh, I meet regularly with the local C- executive directors and CEOs on Zoom, but they're local for our AFP chapter. And one of the CEOs last month was saying how she had a decision she had to make. And she then stopped herself and said, Is this a governance issue or a practical day to day thing? And she decided it was practical day to day. So she didn't need the board's approval. And it was that kind of thinking is critical because board members are awesome. If you're a board member listening to this, thank you. And if you're a staff member of a nonprofit, you should be serving on a board because you need to figure out what it's like for the people that are overseeing your organization, what they're dealing with and how they're coming into a play that's already in process and they're not the experts. I I have high expectations for my board when I'm an employee. And then I become a board member and I realized, oh yeah, they don't, this isn't their life. Okay, so how can we make this easier for them? So learning governance and learning how to deal with the board, I don't know what your experience has been, but my coaching executive directors, often it could take up to 30% of their time, uh, board relations, working with the board, working with the personalities of the board, trying to get the board onboarded correctly because we don't treat our board members well. We just expect them to know what to do, like those little dinosaurs where you take them out of a pill, put water on, and they'd pop up and be a dinosaur. Remember those toys? So we think that the board members are going to do that. And as my um, late friend Simone Jouye would say, no board member wakes up in the morning saying, how can I be a lousy board member today? Um, So we need to set the expectations for what it means to be a good board member and be willing to tell people, no, you're not going to be, this isn't a good fit for you. The board isn't a good fit because we actually need people that will prioritize the meetings. And that doesn't sound like the season of life you're in right now. So- Um, we'll come back to you, or if we come back to you in a few years. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you're a nonprofit or looking to be a nonprofit executive director or looking to be one, you have to understand fundraising, no matter how much you like it or not. the, The number of nonprofit executive directors, I think they can subcontract fundraising to someone else, blows my mind. And I've been at this 25 years, and it's consistent. They think somebody else should do the fundraising. That would be like a shopkeeper opening up a store and saying, Well, all the sales and marketing, though, should be somebody else. I don't want to have to figure out how to get people into my store, and I don't want to have to figure out how to get them to buy the stuff. I just want to have a shop. I just want to be here on Main Street, with the store. Um, And yeah, we all want to just do our thing without having to work on stuff we don't like. But that's not life, (laughs) at least on this planet that I've found so far. So um, I think it would really behoove people to figure out what is good fundraising is counterintuitive. It's not educating people. If, we, you know, one of the myths I hear on boards and in staffs a lot is, well, if we were just to educate people, they'd they'd come to, to give to us. And that's not true because we edu- get educated on a lot of things that we don't take action on. We just get filled with information. So we need to learn how to drive people to action, copywriting skills, um, fundraising letters that are effective and how to do it in an equitable way. There's a really good conversations going on now about equity and the power dynamics of donors and nonprofits and beneficiaries. And how do we equalize that playing field? Uh, but we need to be as we need leaders that are verse, really well versed in that uh, and then can trust their fundraising staff because they're not second guessing the fundraising staff in their own ignorance.
0: Well, you know, I want to circle back what you said about businesses because this is something that we talk about a lot because Honestly there is a dichotomy at play. We think that the you know the partnerships that are emerging right now mm. are really interesting how nonprofit is is partnering with businesses in a unique way especially with the rise of CSR or CSI in that whole aspect. But at the same time we feel like from spending our careers in nonprofit there's a lot of mentalities that business have gotten right in terms of yeah. entrepreneurial mindsets and hacks and using technology that nonprofits are sorely behind. So we always talk about thinking like a business, but I get what you're saying. And I just want to give you the opportunity to respond or push back against us because we think the mentality of thinking that way is positive. Whereas clearly structurally, we're different and different for a reason.
2: Thank you for that. Cause there is a lot okay, more yeah. nuance in there. That's Absolutely right there. One of the things that is really frustrating for me in the nonprofit space is nonprofits are kind of fundamentally risky, especially the small, you know, 80% of us nonprofits are under a million dollars in revenue. So there's this entrepreneurial social entrepreneurial risk taking attitude that a a lot of people go into it with and then get killed because there's, they're not allowed to take risk. The board wants to play it safe. Nobody got fired for doing what they did last year. Um, you tried fundraising appeal and it fails miserably. That is seen as a huge problem when it should be celebrated as a, a win. Hey, we found yes. something that didn't work, but think, you know, great, good for us for trying something new. It's mostly the board members that are saying you have to think like a business uh, because then they're usually saying we have to sell t shirts and we have to buy billboards. So that's the part I think. But the automation, um, my friend Chris Davenport and I, uh, who started, we started the Nonprofit Storytelling Conference. And that was one of the things we thought we were gonna be teaching in that was how to do business automation because you can leverage your personality. You can have a small staff, but leverage your reach by automating tasks. Um, and, and the same thing is with fundraising letters, they shouldn't have to be figured out every time. You should have a fundraising letter that you send in the spring and a fundraising letter you send in the fall. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, maybe a little tweaks, but yeah, there's a lot of systemization and optimization that could be happening. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that for sure.
0: Hey friends, this episode is presented by Virtuous and they just happen to be one of our favorite companies. Let me tell you why. You know we believe everyone matters and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you see and activate donors at every level. And here's the thing, Virtuous created a fundraising platform to help you do just that. It's much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous is committed to helping charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, which is simply putting the donor at the center of fundraising growing giving through personalized donor journeys, and by helping you respond to the needs of every individual. We love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sound like Virtuous may be a fit for your organization? Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes. Hey friends, after meeting some of the most visionary leaders and world changers in the nonprofit sector today, we realized they all have one thing in common. They invest in themselves and their teams so they can stay relevant to what's working now to succeed and scale their missions. You know us, we believe education's for all. And that's when we created We Are For Good Pro. Pro is reimagining nonprofit professional development, giving you access to incredible live coaching events with some of the best thought leaders like Keshana Palmer, Lynn Wester, and more. Imagine being able to work through your challenges in real time, That's the power of pro. Every week, we host a new workshop giving you the playbook and tools to take immediate action, build your confidence, and grow your impact. Be the pro and get started today with a 14-day free trial. Head over to weareforgoodpro.com slash free. Okay, let's get back to this amazing conversation.
1: I'm going back into my public relations world that I had like an early, early in my life, and I'm just feeling so much the confluence of having different languages in the for-profit and the nonprofit world and how that completely stymies us. And so I do think that there's some value in thinking like a business because if, to your point in your example, a board member says, no, 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 we can't do that, that failed, and, and they're employing that scarcity mindset, that's probably also a CEO of a company who is heavily paying his head salesman or saleswoman and and when they fail they're failing forward and they you know they're invested upon and they like that they learn from that we grow from that and we've got well, to be right, able to Well you said right there Becky is great
2: about asking the board members how would you do this in your business because right. um I was when when I was running a foundation for a hospital I was sending 17,000 the same letters to everybody cuz we hadn't segmented our database um and he was able to uh, one of my board members said wait a minute you're sending and so I was pitching like well, let's have some database analytics done. And he said, "You don't know who you're emailing?" And so we have their addresses, but he said you don't he said I'd go out of business if I just broadcast email, you know, a letter to everybody. I need 65-year-old women who have a certain asset base and do have these these particular hobbies. That's who I that's my target market for a financial advisor. And you could see the car dealers and the other people, the bankers and all around the tables totally getting it. So that speaking, that language was much better. And it, it, you know, they readily invested in having us do analytics.
0: I love that you decide to write this book that just steps into what everybody's thinking under the surface. I mean, especially as you move up in leadership, you realize that this is at every level. You just may not see that level of transparency depending on the relationship. But the more, you know, people, the more you realize, man, everybody's trying to figure stuff out at every level. So would you talk to us about why you decided to write this book and then give us some you know, some tidbits of what to expect.
2: Well, part of part of the, <laughs> selfishly, the reason I wrote it was people had asked me what I did. And in 2000, so in 2003, I became a Franklin Covey certified executive coach. So 17, 18 years ago. Um, and from then I spent over a decade trying to figure out how to be like, how to explain what I do. And I would, you know, people would say, what do you do? And I said, I'm an executive coach. And they say, oh, okay. And then you'd see them go back to their meal and this quizzical look get on their face, like... <laughs> what do you do? So, uh, so part of it is that I'm just not, I'm good at helping other people get their messaging straight, but sometimes it takes me 15 years to get mine straight. So (laughs) the surprising gift of doubt was about, um, it started out with how do I work with clients or how do I work with people? And then it stepped, then I realized this is too specific. Where are they on their journey when they get there? Um, One of the things that has been consistently surprising the people I work with and speak to is what you were saying, John doubt is, is a, actually it's doubt can mean that we're broken, but it can also just mean that we're on a journey. And then, and I like to say that um, doubt can mean that you're broken, but it could also mean that you're on the verge of greatness because it could be pushing you to reconsider the things that you've accepted as the norm. Um, But we don't have that kind of development or leadership. And so that's where coaching and consulting and having outside experts can be really helpful because we are, Jamie Smith, when she was head of uh, YNPN, said to, uh, once told me this, and it just fit. She said, for early careers, we get graded or, or reviewed on how tactical we are. Do we solve tactical problems? And that feeds into the schooling that we've had, where we we get graded for the you know answering the right questions or answering the questions correctly, and and all. She said, when we move up into managers, we have to learn people skills. We realize that just being tactically good isn't enough. We have to actually get along with people. But then when you move into senior leadership, that doesn't do it either because any CEO who's tried to help somebody tactically solve their their, their positional problem knows that they're considered micromanagers. Yeah. Uh, I worked with one CEO who is a yeah. sound engineer, great sound abilities. His engineers did not appreciate when he would go in and say, maybe these are the problems. He thought he was being helpful by saying, I'm not just observing a problem, but I'm also seeing some of the causes. But it it came across as micromanaging. So the senior level is where we need to, uh, it's the higher we get up, the more doubt there is because there's less certain, there's less certainty. We don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of years. We don't know what's going to happen in the next week. And um, we don't know that our peers are dealing with that. (laughs) I, I got to do a uh, panel here in Greenville for our state association with all, uh, new executive directors that were three to five years into their position. And it was so fun. We packed out this breakout room. People wanted to hear the story. And I thought I, at the end of it, people and and the leaders are awesome. When they're asked, they'll just drop the masks when it's a safe space and they'll, they'll share. Um, so they were, they had, had, we had an hour of great talking about how to, you know, the struggles, the wrestling, how to, the pressure of meeting payroll on a regular basis. Um, and then at the end, I thought I'd do a softball question like you do just to have everybody feeling good when they leave. So I looked at them and said, so, OK, you've been in this three to five years. At what point did you start sleeping through the night?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because most of the leaders I know don't. They, they get their mind kind of activates at like two in the morning and they, uh, start, but at a time when they can't do anything about the stuff that's activated, about it, it just freaks out. Uh, and they looked at each other and there's this awkward pause. And they said, you could hear them on the mic saying, do you sleep through the night yet? Do you sleep through the night yet? And the whole, like the, the hundred plus people in the room just went, Oh no, that's what I'm getting into because we look at the leaders and they project confidence because that's, that's appropriate. But we don't see the safe spaces that they've created if there are any. Coaching peers, I like peers, peer associations where you could just talk to another person and you're at your level um, and just get real uh, because we need to know that doubt is normal uh, and it's not something to be ashamed of. Just like so much of life, when you think the darkest secret, when you shine light on it, it's not that scary. But it is to you when you're trying to hide it, and and project, and that's where we get really bad leaders. They're trying to hide their, their their doubt, their vulnerability. And and it's we. I had one leader in Denver say, "I can't be vulnerable." I like you know Brene Brown. She said it, she said it that way. I like Brene Brown and all that. But it's, I have a hundred people that are waiting for their job. Uh, they they want to know that they're going to have a job tomorrow. And if I'm vulnerable and uncertain in front of them, that's going to set the wrong message. And so it's an interesting, I think Brene talks about too, about how to have the right arm. You have to have armor at the right time and share it at the right time. So, but yeah, being vulnerable makes you a lot safer.
1: And I I feel like it makes you more human. And I, I am loving the 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 irony that we work so hard on sleep training our children so that they will sleep through the night and here we are as adults and we cannot wind ourselves down and sleep train ourselves to sleep through the night and we know that if we did mental health would increase you know our calmness and our peace and our serenity would be easier to find so i i just want to thank you mark because i confess i have never thought about doubt one time in my career. But as you're talking wow. about this, I am pulling in story after story in my career in, of, of when it happened to me. And I, and I think the beauty of doubt is the challenge that it creates. You can either, doubt can do two things to you. It can create this imposter syndrome and you have, I'm not right, I'm not fitting into this box, but it can also be an exploration exercise of why is my gut telling me that this is not Good. right? And I th- I agree with you. I just think there's so much potential in doing that self-work right there and understanding why you feel that way. And I just want to say lastly, j- I just think in this day and age, in the way that we're talking about building vibrant cultures, people want to see their leaders as human beings. And if you are constantly perpetuating a sense of confidence of ease of everything's okay, that is not going to mirror the feelings of your staff. And they're not going to feel like they can come in and feel safe to bring you these challenges. Mm. And so open up a little, like take a little baby step in there.
2: Well, I guess maybe for people that don't like the vulnerability and I get that. So I, I love Enneagram. I talk about that. And, um, and, and surprising gifted out. um, I've used it for over thirty years myself. Okay, I'm you guys a two. are saying your numbers. I'm a two. Julie's sign. a two.
1: <laughs> Um, you're
2: a what? Seven. A seven. Um, oh, so I, there, yes. I present as interest. a three cause I get stuff done and I'm goal centered and all this stuff, but I'm a seven. And so I know I'm a seven because just because of this, um, I was told by when we were getting <laughs> in premarital counseling, 27 years ago, um, my, the priest who did our premarital counseling looked at our personality things and said, okay, Mark, you are not, you celebrate your mistakes. Like if I screwed up, I'll, I'll talk, I'll get on a, you know, a broadcast and talk about how I messed up because I want other people to learn from it. And it's like, wow, that was dumb. I was you know, look at this. Don't be like me. You know? So I had to be careful because my wife wouldn't necessarily be ready to do that. <laughs> um, and threes, uh, if you know, the Enneagram three, the being successful is a, is the goal. And so looking like you haven't been successful, is a has that moral gravitas of I am a failure, which so so if you're in that stance and or some one of the other stances, a great way to to start dabbling in empathy is um or or that kind of being human saying, I don't know. What do you think Mm -hmm. when a leader can bring that you just start drawing out of your direct reports, the best answers that way. So I'm not sure. That's a great question. What do you think?
0: That's a way to build into every leader in your team. Cause we do think everybody's a leader. And I think the way that you show up is equipping the next generation of leaders, you know, with that. Yes. So giving them that space to kind of explore it. So, okay, Mark, I know you work a ton as just a leadership coach too. So let me, you know, we have a lot of young listeners and not that I'm Yay. putting this just on young listeners, but you know, imposter syndrome is real. We do feel that a lot. I mean, just Often. in our day to day, still at 38, you know, how do you coach people through that to really embrace their unique talents, their step into you know, some of that confidence level? Can you kind of
2: well, Yeah. That? So it's Stephen Covey used to talk about a um, circle of concern and a circle of influence. Your circle of concern is all the things you're worried about, it, economy, world politics, everything, the organization, culture, your, your office. Um, the circle of influence is what you can actually do something about. Um, and so you can't necessarily – for the emerging leaders in particular, it isn't necessarily safe to grow because they um, – I'm a Gen Xer. I got dumped on by boomers in World War II. Yay! Same Xers Zs. Um, and, and it it really frustrates me that millennials and Zs and the others get dumped on by the Xers and other the people that raised the kids to – live life the way they do are then frustrated with the results. It's like, if you plant seeds and you get a plant, it's the seeds you planted. Your kids are there. what
1: you make them. We <laughs> yes. talk about this all the time at our house,
2: oh, man. It's
1: so, it's, Usually anyway, when we have a problem and we're blaming ourselves. So, yeah.
2: so what I would encourage people that are emerging, first of all, there's, we're going to have a lot of millennials and other and, and younger leaders than for a while, come into leadership. Uh, some studies have shown we need 80,000 leaders in the nonprofit sector a year <sighs> as boomers retire and expire. But with the emerging leaders, first of all, they're often not given leadership responsibilities because the people above them don't think that, or are leadership training because the people above them don't have it figured out and they don't know how to train.
1: Yes. Boom. Keep going.
2: In my twenties, <laughs> I went to people. So one of my, one of my things that I've tried to do throughout my life, an example, since we've been talking about kids, when we found out we were going to have kids, we looked at the teenagers we liked, my wife and I, and we interviewed their parents what did you do? How did you raise the kids? What kind of rhythms did you have at school? What books did you, or in the house, what books did you read? I would try to do that in my twenties with people that had careers that I thought I wanted to have. And I freaked out so many people because they didn't have it together. And they, the package (laughs) that I saw was not the package they were seeing. The viewpoint was different from where they were. Um, and so rather than trusting, this is where you, they're pushing through the doubt rather than trusting that I, I had insight to see something. Um, they, they freaked out and they're like, I can't help you. So a lot of emerging leaders in organizations where the leaders themselves are just trying to make it as they go along, they're making it up as they go along. And they feel like that could be, something's wrong with that. So I think it's working in that circle of concern, like, Of influence, I mean, working on your own stuff, building, being true to yourself, having integrity with the commitments you make with yourself. If you tell somebody, if you make a goal that you're going to do a certain amount of something, put it on your calendar and don't feel like you're faking it because you're just having just having an appointment with yourself. No, you're keeping integrity with yourself and you're doing the stuff it takes to get the job done. Um, One time I went with my boss and she had had a whole bunch of things that I was supposed to be doing. And it was in addition to my full-time job. Um, and so I took a ledger of legal paper and I wrote down all the things from the previous year on the left side and then all the new th- initiatives on the right side. And I said to her, I, I felt like I really felt stressed about this because I felt like it was the wrong thing. To, it was a scary ask. But I asked her, I said, I need your help. Each of these individual tasks in, of themselves, I can argue for why they're the top A1 priority to do. But it's all the priorities. And I'm not supposed to be here 24 hours a day and I understand this is my job. This is my job description, whatever. How do I know where to land? If a phone call comes in, do I finish the grant proposal? Cause there's a deadline and we want the funding or do I pick up the phone because we want alum to have a live human being? Like, could you help me with some of those? So I tried to go to her with my problem, but having some sort of like, this is the kind of thing I'm looking for. She took the, the, the legal pad, leaned back in her chair and I thought I'm going to get fired. I didn't, I, I really, th- I was so scared. Um, she said, I wish I could do this after a, a very long, it felt, it was probably only a few seconds, but it felt like an eternity. She said, I wish I could do this with my, my exec, my boss. Cause you're absolutely right. This is too much for one human to do. Um, and so then we worked through, so, so I was having to kind of, I call it, I learned in, uh, in my master's program, it was called impression management. Um, what are the impressions that you can manage? Um, So, so for the emerging leaders, part of it is just getting to know yourself well, figuring out, um, if you like the Enneagram, if you like DISC, if you like, uh, the Highlands Ability Battery or Myers-Briggs or something, you not getting so good at it that you can say the labels, but getting even better so that you can say the essence of the labels without anybody having to be an expert in any of those systems, um, And not doing it so you can confine yourself in a box and say, I can't possibly do that because I'm an introvert, but (laughs) knowing what it will take to do something. If you're being required to be on stage for something and you're an introvert, knowing that you're going to have to buffer some time for charging on either side. Um, And so as you start building in that integrity with yourself to whatever ability you're able to, people start taking notice Uh, and they start trusting you with more responsibility, but they also start asking you, how are you doing this? because everybody else seems to be running around out of control with their head you know ha- heads on fire but you seem to have something going correctly how, how do you do that so I, I think that's those are a few of the tips that i'd give
1: I love the way that you really thread story into what you're doing. And I just think you must have such incredible lived experiences because we said this before we started. I mean, you are one of these forward thinking visionary giants on whose shoulders that we are for good stands. You have laid an incredible framework and a challenge to the sector to improve and keep getting better and to keep innovating. And I want to know a story from you of a moment of philanthropy that touched you, changed your life, um, what would you offer today?
2: I was working with a homeless shelter that was afraid to ask for money. Um, there had been an institutional change, and so there, the leader wasn't used to this. They were used to spending budgets, not, raising, not creating them, which is fine. But um, in the middle of a capital campaign, it's problematic. Um, and so there was one donor that I called. I was the consultant on it. I called or emailed every week for six months without getting a response. Um everything in his past history had said that he was good uh, that he was a good candidate for the for the ask. And I felt there's a couple of weeks where I felt like I'm really pushing this. He's I'm a firm believer a donor hasn't said no until they say no. Silence, silence isn't a no. Silence is just silence. My head doesn't always agree with that, but I, like I'm a firm believer of that. Six months later, I find, after this weekly follow up of different sorts, sometimes a handwritten note, he he picked up the phone, and he said his first words out of his mouth were. Mark, I am so sorry. Thank you for your persistence. You've been so pleasantly persistent. And that led to uh, a nice donation. Well, and for the fundraisers listening to this, his next words were even more like, an, a, you know, kind of get your your attention. He said, I was in Boston. He said, I'm standing outside of my home in sh- my chateau in France. Can I call you when I get back? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. That would be absolutely all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, I think for me that the philanthropy and the generosity, one of the reasons why that wasn't working for the organization was they wanted to force him into a certain form of touring what they thought was respectful for donors. The donor didn't want to waste their time. He just wanted to give. Um, and so the pleasant persistence and having that, I am so sorry, Thank you for your, thank you for not giving up on me from a donor <laughs> – Has helped me to to remind myself about a lot of the people we work with. That they're if they're not responding, it's maybe not because they're, it maybe just that they're not responding. It doesn't mean that they've said anything about us, who we are, what they think of us. Uh, And I think that builds a resiliency that we can use in all sorts of different interactions with employees, with staff, with faculty, with uh, well, with faculty, but with uh, donors as well.
0: I mean, I feel like everything you've given us today is about building resiliency because we need a lot of that, yeah. you know, in every aspect of this work. Um, okay. Well, Mark, we, you know, start to wrap up all of our conversations, trying to get you to narrow to give us one good thing. Okay. This could be a life mantra. This could be a hack or a tip. What would be one good thing you would offer our community today?
2: The one that is coming to mind as a result of this conversation is there's because of the complexity of our world and the fast pace that's happening. Um, I think we'd all agree that it would be great if every decision could have a decision tree and we could make our choices through them and all it doesn't tend to happen. So knowing our values, our core values and our organizational values, I think is a key thing that will help us. I did a good a values inventory when I went through coach training in 2003. And one of the values that triggered or popped up was independence. And that's why I realized, that's why I love being a major gift fundraiser. And that's why I won't go into management as a major gift operator, uh, if, you know, a manager of major gift fundraisers, because those are some of the most frustrated people I'd ever met. They didn't, weren't good. They were good at getting the gifts, but they weren't good at managing the getting of the gifts. Um, they wanted to just be with the donors, not be in it, you know, have a filter through the donors. So um, knowing your core values, I did this with one group, uh, nonprofit group. And um, we ha- we came back from our breakout rooms and they said, one of the biggest takeaways was many people didn't know their organizational core values. Like they knew what was on the board room wall. But they didn't really know what the lived core values were, so um, could could I share a resource for this? Oh, absolutely. okay oh, yeah. we'll nice. So uh, I have a free values uh, inventory at concord slash values. You can get this order. It's a page, and you just and there are directions on how to do that. Um, there's, I, I have found that that helps us make deci- good better decisions faster. So what you were saying, Becky, before about I don't know what's going to happen. You can also say I don't know what the future holds, but I do know what isn't changing. I one of the things that leaders need to keep reminding people what isn't changing, especially in a world that everything seems to be changing. We're going to treat people in a certain way. And we're going to strive to be this type, to do this with our mission. Um, these are some things we're going to hold to, and that will anchor the people of all different very stripes and, and very, you know, variations of outlooks on the world. will anchor to, oh yeah, that's why I came to this nonprofit. I wanted to do this good in the world.
1: Gosh, that recentering is so powerful right now. Right, John?
0: And what an awesome resource. I mean, we'll drop that link in the episode description. So it will be easy to click and follow over, but okay, Mark, how can people find you point us to where all your books are? Because we need to start at the beginning. Please and go to
2: your local bookstore and ask them, <laughs> if it, do you have any books by Mark Pittman? Uh, but if you can't, I also am on Amazon. Um, I, I was telling you all before before we get on the air that I tried to make myself findable on Google. So if you Google Mark Pittman, Mark with a C, Pittman with one T, the one that has Concord Leadership Group with their title or uh, executive coach would probably be me, especially the bow tie. Even my business cards are bow tie shaped. So Twitter, Mark A. Pittman, uh, LinkedIn I'm active on and uh, definitely email mark, M-A-R-C at concordleadershipgroup.com and I, I love interacting and helping people in ways that I can. Oh the nonprofit dot com would be another way, I guess.
1: This has been such an enriching conversation and it is it is a conversation that is so baked into the now. I think it's so relevant mm-hmm. for the moment that we're standing in now as we're kind of coming into the two-year mark of this pandemic yeah. and we're starting to kind of find our um, our stride. We're hitting our stride of what we're going to start pointing to and I think baking in these leadership concepts and, and feeling okay when things are not perfect and embracing that vulnerability is such a great challenge. So Mark, thank 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 you so much for coming and joining us, making us laugh, and just being such a delightful and aspirational mentor for our sector. We just really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. I'm sure. I had a great time. Thank you.
1: Hey, friends. Thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with
2: helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing. If you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us, and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom.
0: Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast.
1: Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief